Section 45 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicola K. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 24, Part 2. 9. The same account is to be given of the passage lately quoted, in which Christ says that none is lost but the son of perdition. John 17, verse 12. The expression is not strictly proper, but it is by no means obscure. For Judas was not numbered among the sheep of Christ, because he was one truly, but because he held a place among them. Then, in another passage where the Lord says that he was elected with the apostles, references made only to the office, Have I not chosen you twelve, says he, and one of you is a devil? John six seventy. That is, he had chosen him to the office of apostle, but when he speaks of election to salvation, he altogether excludes him from the number of the elect. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. John thirteen eighteen. Should any one confound the term election in the two passages, he will miserably entangle himself. Whereas, if he distinguish between them, nothing can be plainer. Gregory, therefore, is most grievously and perniciously in error when he says that we are conscious only of our calling, but are uncertain of our election. And hence he exhorts all to fear and trembling, giving this as the reason that though we know what we are to-day, yet we know not what we are to be. But in that passage he clearly shows how he stumbled on that stone. By suspending election on the merit of works, he had too good a reason for dispiriting the minds of his readers, while at the same time, as he did not lead them away from themselves to confidence in the divine goodness, he was unable to confirm them. Hence believers may in some measure perceive the truth of what we said at the outset, that is, predestination duly considered does not shake faith, but rather affords the best confirmation of it. I deny not, however, that the Spirit sometimes accommodates his language to our feeble capacity, as when he says, They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel. Ezekiel 13.9 As if God were beginning to write the names of those whom he counts among his people in the book of life, whereas we know, even on the testimony of Christ, that the names of the children of God were written in the book of life from the beginning. Luke 10, verse 20. The words simply indicate the abandonment of those who seemed to have a chief place among the elect, as is said in the psalm, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Psalm 69, verse 28. 10. For the elect are brought by calling into the fold of Christ, not from the very womb, nor all at the same time, but according as God sees it meet to dispense his grace. Before they are gathered to the supreme shepherd, they wander dispersed in a common desert, and in no respect differ from others, except that by the special mercy of God they are kept from rushing to final destruction. 
Therefore, if you look to themselves, you will see the offspring of Adam giving token of the common corruption of the mass. That they proceed not to extreme and desperate impiety is not owing to any innate goodness in them, but because the eye of God watches for their safety, and his hand is stretched over them. Those who dream of some seed of election implanted in their hearts from their birth, by the agency of which they are ever inclined to piety and the fear of God, are not supported by the authority of Scripture, but refuted by experience. They indeed produce a few examples to prove that the elect, before they were enlightened, were not aliens from religion. For instance, that Paul led an unblemished life during his Pharisaism, that Cornelius was accepted for his prayers and alms, and so forth. Philippians 3, 5, Acts 10, verse 2. The case of Paul we admit, but we hold that they are in error as to Cornelius, for it appears that he was already enlightened and regenerated, so that all which he wanted was a clear revelation of the gospel. But what are they to extract from these few examples? Is it that all the elect were always endued with the spirit of piety? Just as well might anyone, after pointing to the integrity of Aristides, Socrates, Xenocrates, Scipio, Curios, Camillus, and others, see Book 2, Chapter 4, Section 4, infer that all who are left in the blindness of idolatry are studious of virtue and holiness. Nay, even Scripture is plainly opposed to them in more passages than one. The description which Paul gives of the state of the Ephesians before regeneration shows not one grain of this seed. His words are, You has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians 2, 1-3 And again, At that time ye were without Christ, having no hope, and without God in the world. Ephesians 2, 12 Again, Ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 8 But perhaps they will insist that in this last passage reference is made to that ignorance of the true God in which they deny not that the elect lived before they were called. Though this is grossly inconsistent with the apostles' inference that they were no longer to lie or steal, Ephesians four twenty eight. What answer will they give to other passages, such as that in which, after declaring to the Corinthians that neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God? He immediately adds, Such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Again he says to the Romans, As ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, 
even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness for when ye were the servants of sin ye were free from righteousness what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed romans six nineteen to twenty one eleven say then what seed of election germinated in those who contaminated in various ways during their whole lives indulged as with desperate wickedness in every kind of abomination had Paul meant to express this view, he ought to have shown how much they then owed to the kindness of God, by which they had been preserved from falling into such pollution. Thus, too, Peter ought to have exhorted his countrymen to gratitude for a perpetual seed of election. On the contrary, his admonition is, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. 1 Peter 4, verse 3 what if we come to examples was there any germ of righteousness in rahab the harlot before she believed joshua two verse four in manasseh when jerusalem was dyed and almost deluged with the blood of the prophets second kings twenty three verse sixteen in the thief who only with his last breath thought of repentance luke twenty three verse forty two have done, then, with those arguments which curious men of themselves rashly devise without any authority from Scripture. But let us hold fast what Scripture states, that is, that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Isaiah 53, verse 6. That is to perdition. In this gulf of perdition, God leaves those whom he has determined one day to deliver until his own time arrives. He only preserves them from plunging into irremediable blasphemy. 12. As the Lord, by the efficacy of his calling, accomplishes towards his elect the salvation to which he had by his eternal counsel destined them, so he has judgments against the reprobate, by which he executes his counsel concerning them. Those, therefore, whom he has created for dishonor during life and destruction at death, that they may be vessels of wrath and examples of severity in bringing to their doom he at one time deprives of the means of hearing his word at another by the preaching of it blinds and stupefies them the more the examples of the former case are innumerable but let us select one of the most remarkable of all before the advent of christ about four thousand years passed away during which he hid the light of saving doctrine from all nations. If any one answer that he did not put them in possession of the great blessing, because he judged them unworthy, then their posterity will be in no respect more worthy. Of this, in addition to experience, Malachi is a sufficient witness, for while charging them with mixed unbelief and blasphemy, he yet declares that the Redeemer will come, why then is he given to the latter rather than to the former? They will in vain torment themselves in seeking for a deeper cause than the secret and inscrutable counsel of God, and there is no occasion to fear lest some disciple of porphyry with impunity arraign the justice of God, while we say nothing in its defense. For while we maintain that none perish without deserving it, and that it is owing to the free goodness of God that some are delivered, enough has been said for the display of his glory. 
there is not the least occasion for our cavilling. The Supreme Disposer then makes way for his own predestination, when depriving those whom he has reprobated of the communication of his light, he leaves them in blindness. Every day furnishes instances of the latter case, and many of them are set before us in Scripture. Among a hundred to whom the same discourse is delivered, twenty, perhaps, receive it with the prompt obedience of faith. The others set no value upon it, or deride, or spurn, or abominate it. If it is said that this diversity is owing to the malice and perversity of the latter, the answer is not satisfactory. For the same wickedness would possess the minds of the former, did not God in his goodness correct it. And hence we will always be entangled until we call in the aid of Paul's question, Who maketh thee to differ? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, intimating that some excel others, not by their own virtue, but by the mere favor of God. 13. Why then, while bestowing grace on the one, does he pass by the other? In regard to the former, Luke gives the reason, because they were ordained to eternal life. Acts thirteen forty-eight. What then shall we think of the latter, but that they are vessels of wrath unto dishonor? Wherefore let us not decline to say with Augustine, God could change the will of the wicked into good, because he is omnipotent. Clearly he could. Why then does he not do it? Because he is unwilling. Why he is unwilling remains with himself. We should not attempt to be wise above what is meet, and it is much better to take Augustine's explanation than to quibble with Chrysostom, that he draws him who is willing, and stretching forth his hand, lest the difference should seem to lie in the judgment of God, and not in the mere will of man. So far is it indeed from being placed in the mere will of man, that we may add that even the pious and those who fear God need the special inspiration of the Spirit. Lydia, a seller of purple, feared God, and yet it was necessary that her heart should be opened, that she might attend to the doctrine of Paul, and profit in it. Acts 16.14 This was not said of one woman only, but to teach us that all progress in piety is the secret work of the Spirit. Nor can it be questioned that God sends his word to many whose blindness he is pleased to aggravate. For why does he order so many messages to be taken to Pharaoh? Was it because he hoped that he might be softened by the repetition? Nay, before he began, he both knew and had foretold the result. The Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he will not let the people go. Exodus 4, 21 So when he raises up Ezekiel, he forewarns him, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. Be not afraid of their words. Thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see, and see not. They have ears to hear, and hear not. Ezekiel 2, verses 3 and 6, and chapter 12, verse 2. 
thus he foretells to jeremiah that the effect of his doctrine would be to root out and pull down and to destroy jeremiah 1 verse 10 but the prophecy of isaiah presses still more closely for he is thus commissioned by the lord go and tell this people hear ye indeed but understand not and see ye indeed but perceive not make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10 here he directs his voice to them but it is that they may turn a deafer ear he kindles a light but it is that they may become more blind he produces a doctrine but it is that they may be more stupid he employs a remedy but it is that they may not be cured and john referring to this prophecy declares that the jews could not believe the doctrine of christ because this curse from god lay upon them it is also incontrovertible that to those whom god is not pleased to illumine he delivers his doctrine wrapped up in enigmas so that they may not profit by it but be given over to greater blindness hence our saviour declares that the parables in which he had spoken to the multitude he expounded to the apostles only because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it is not given matthew thirteen verse eleven what you will ask does our lord mean by teaching those by whom he is careful not to be understood consider where the fault lies and then cease to ask how obscure soever the word may be there is always sufficient light in it to convince the consciences of the ungodly 14. it now remains to see why the lord acts in the manner in which it is plain that he does if the answer be given that it is because men deserve this by their impiety wickedness and ingratitude it is indeed well and truly said but still because it does not yet appear what the cause of the difference is why some are turned to obedience and others remain obdurate we must in discussing it pass to the passage from moses on which paul has commented namely even for this same purpose have i raised thee up that i might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth romans nine seventeen the refusal of the reprobate to obey the word of god when manifested to them will be properly ascribed to the malice and depravity of their hearts provided it be at the same time added that they were adjudged to this depravity because they were raised up by the just but inscrutable judgment of god to show forth his glory by their condemnation in like manner when it is said of the sons of eli that they would not listen to salutary admonitions because the lord would slay them first samuel chapter two twenty five it is not denied that their stubbornness was the result of their own iniquity but it is at the same time stated why they were left to their stubbornness when the lord might have softened their hearts namely because his immutable decree had once for all doomed them to destruction hence the words of john though he had done so many miracles before them yet they believed not on him that the saying of isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake 
Lord, who has believed our report? John 12, verses 37 and 38. For though he does not exculpate their perverseness, he is satisfied with the reason that the grace of God is insipid to men, until the Holy Spirit gives it its savor. And Christ, in quoting the prophecy of Isaiah, They shall be all taught of God. John 6, 45 designs only to show that the Jews were reprobates and aliens from the church, because they would not be taught, and gives no other reason than that the promise of God does not belong to them. Confirmatory of this are the words of Paul, Christ crucified was unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.23 For after mentioning the usual result wherever the gospel is preached, that it exasperates some and is despised by others, he says that it is precious to them only who are called. A little before he had given them the name of believers, but he was unwilling to refuse the proper rank to divine grace, which precedes faith. Or rather, he added the second term by way of correction, that those who had embraced the gospel might ascribe the merit of their faith to the calling of God. Thus also he shortly after shows that they were elected by God. When the wicked hear these things, they complain that God abuses his inordinate power to make cruel sport with the miseries of his creatures. But let us who know that all men are liable on so many grounds to the judgment of God that they cannot answer for one in a thousand of their transgressions. Job 9, verse 3. Confess that the reprobates suffer nothing which is not accordant with the most perfect justice. When unable clearly to ascertain the reason, let us not decline to be somewhat in ignorance in regard to the depths of the divine wisdom. 15. But since an objection is often founded on a few passages of Scripture in which God seems to deny that the wicked perish through his ordination, except in so far as they spontaneously bring death upon themselves in opposition to his warning, let us briefly explain these passages and demonstrate that they are not adverse to the above view. One of the passages adduced is, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? saith the Lord God and not that he should return from his ways and live? Ezekiel 18.23 If we are to extend this to the whole human race, why are not the very many whose minds might be more easily bent to obey urged to repentance, rather than those who by his invitations become daily more and more hardened? Our Lord declares that the preaching of the gospel and miracles would have produced more fruit among the people of Nineveh and Sodom than in Judea. Matthew thirteen twenty three. How comes it then that if God would have all to be saved, he does not open a door of repentance for the wretched, who would more readily have received grace? Hence we may see that the passage is violently wrested if the will of God which the prophet mentions is opposed to his eternal counsel, by which he separated the elect from the reprobate. Now, if the genuine meaning of the prophet is inquired into, it will be found that he only means to give the hope of pardon to them who repent. The sum is that God is undoubtedly ready to pardon whenever the sinner turns. 
Therefore he does not will his death, in so far as he wills repentance. But experience shows that this will for the repentance of those whom he invites to himself is not such as to make him touch all their hearts. Still, it cannot be said that he acts deceitfully. For though the external word only renders those who hear it and do not obey it inexcusable, it is still truly regarded as an evidence of the grace by which he reconciles men to himself. Let us therefore hold the doctrine of the prophet, that God has no pleasure in the death of the sinner. That the godly may feel confident that whenever they repent, God is ready to pardon them, and that the wicked may feel that their guilt is doubled, when they respond not to the great mercy and condescension of God. The mercy of God, therefore, will ever be ready to meet the penitent, but all the prophets and apostles, and Ezekiel himself, clearly tell us who they are to whom repentance is given. 16. The second passage adduced is that in which Paul says that God will have all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Though the reason here differs from the former, they have somewhat in common. I answer first that the mode in which God thus wills is plain from the context, for Paul connects two things, a will to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If by this they will have it to be fixed by the eternal counsel of God that they are to receive the doctrine of salvation, what is meant by Moses in these words? What nation is there so great who has God so nigh unto them? Deuteronomy 4, 7. How comes it that many nations are deprived of that light of the gospel which others enjoy? How comes it that the pure knowledge of the doctrine of godliness has never reached some, and others have scarcely tasted some obscure rudiments of it? It will now be easy to extract the purport of Paul's statement. He had commanded Timothy that prayers should be regularly offered up in the church for kings and princes. But as it seemed somewhat absurd that prayer should be offered up for a class of men who were almost hopeless, all of them being not only aliens from the body of Christ, but doing their utmost to overthrow his kingdom, he adds that it was acceptable to God, who will have all men to be saved. By this he assuredly means nothing more than that the way of salvation was not shut against any order of men, that on the contrary, he had manifested his mercy in such a way that he would have none debarred from it. Other passages do not declare what God has in his secret judgment determined with regard to all, but declare that pardon is prepared for all sinners who only turn to seek after it. For if they persist in urging the words, God has concluded all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Romans 11.32 I will, on the contrary, urge what is elsewhere written. Our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. Psalm 115.3 We must therefore expound the passage so as to reconcile it with another. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Exodus 33.19 he who selects those whom he is to visit in mercy does not impart it to all. But since it clearly appears that he is there speaking not of individuals, but of orders of men, let us have done with a longer discussion. 
At the same time we ought to observe, that Paul does not assert what God does always everywhere and in all circumstances, but leaves it free to him to make kings and magistrates partakers of heavenly doctrine, though in their blindness they rage against it. A stronger objection seems to be founded on the passage in Peter, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9 but the solution of the difficulty is to be found in the second branch of the sentence. For his will that they should come to repentance cannot be used in any other sense than that which is uniformly employed. Conversion is undoubtedly in the hand of God. Whether he designs to convert all can be learned from himself, when he promises that he will give some a heart of flesh and leave to others a heart of stone. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. It is true that if he were not disposed to receive those who implore his mercy, it could not have been said, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 1, 3 But I hold that no man approaches God unless previously influenced from above. And if repentance were placed at the will of man, Paul would not say, If God peradventure will give them repentance. Second Timothy 2.25 Nay, did not God at the very time when he is verbally exhorting all to repentance influence the elect by the secret movement of his spirit? Jeremiah would not say, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned. I repented. Jeremiah thirty-one eighteen. Seventeen. But if it is so, you will say, little faith can be put in the gospel promises, which in testifying concerning the will of God, declare that he wills what is contrary to his inviolable decree. Not at all, for however universal the promises of salvation may be, there is no discrepancy between them and the predestination of the reprobate provided we attend to their effect. We know that the promises are effectual only when we receive them in faith, but on the contrary, when faith is made void, the promise is of no effect. If this is the nature of the promises, let us now see whether there be any inconsistency between the two things, that is, that God, by an eternal decree, fixed the number of those whom he is pleased to embrace in love, and on whom he is pleased to display his wrath, and that he offers salvation indiscriminately to all. I hold that they are perfectly consistent, for all that is meant by the promise is just that his mercy is offered to all who desire and implore it, and this none do, save those whom he has enlightened. Moreover, he enlightens those whom he has predestined to salvation. Thus the truth of the promises remains firm and unshaken, so that it cannot be said there is any disagreement between the eternal election of God and the testimony of his grace, which he offers to believers. But why does he mention all men? Namely, that the consciences of the righteous may rest the more secure when they understand that there is no difference between sinners, provided they have faith and that the ungodly may not be able to allege that they have not an asylum to which they may retake themselves from the bondage of sin, while they ungratefully reject the offer which is made to them. 
Therefore, since by the gospel the mercy of God is offered to both, it is faith, in other words, the illumination of God, which distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, the former feeling the efficacy of the gospel, the latter obtaining no benefit from it. Illumination itself has eternal election for its rule. Another passage quoted is the lamentation of our Savior. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. But it gives them no support. I admit that here Christ speaks not only in the character of man, but upbraids them with having in every age rejected his grace. But this will of God, of which we speak, must be defined. For it is well known what exertions the Lord made to retain that people, and how perversely from the highest to the lowest they followed their own wayward desires, and refused to be gathered together. But it does not follow that by the wickedness of men the counsel of God was frustrated. They object that nothing is less accordant with the nature of God than that he should have a double will. This I concede, provided they are sound interpreters. But why do they not attend to the many passages in which God clothes himself with human affections and descends beneath his proper majesty? He says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people. Isaiah 65, 1 exerting himself early and late to bring them back. Were they to apply these qualities without regarding the figure, many unnecessary disputes would arise, which are quashed by the simple solution that what is human is here transferred to God. Indeed, the solution which we have given elsewhere is amply sufficient. That is, that though to our apprehension the will of God is manifold, yet he does not in himself will opposites, but according to his manifold wisdom, so Paul styles it in Ephesians 3.10, transcends our senses until such time as it shall be given us to know how he mysteriously wills what now seems to be adverse to his will. They also amuse themselves with the cavil that since God is the Father of all, it is unjust to discard any one before he has, by his misconduct, merited such a punishment. As if the kindness of God did not extend even to dogs and swine. But if we confine our view to the human race, let them tell why God selected one people for himself and became their father, and why from that one people he plucked only a small number as if they were the flower. But those who thus charge God are so blinded by their love of evil speaking that they consider not that as God maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, Matthew 5:45, so the inheritance is treasured up for a few to whom it shall one day be said, Come, ye blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom, etc. Matthew twenty five thirty four. They object, moreover, that God does not hate any of the things which he has made. 
This I concede, but it does not affect the doctrine which I maintain, that the reprobate are hateful to God, and that with perfect justice, since those destitute of his spirit cannot produce anything that does not deserve cursing. They add that there is no distinction of Jew and Gentile, and that therefore the grace of God is held forth to all indiscriminately. True, provided they admit, as Paul declares, that God calls as well Jews as Gentiles, according to his good pleasure, without being astricted to any. This disposes of their gloss upon another passage. God has concluded all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Romans 11.32 In other words, he wills that all who are saved should ascribe their salvation to his mercy, although the blessing of salvation is not common to all. Finally, after all that has been adduced on this side and on that, let it be our conclusion to feel overawed with Paul at the great depth, and if petulant tongues will still murmur, let us not be ashamed to join in his exclamation, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Romans 9.20 Truly does Augustine maintain that it is perverse to measure divine by the standard of human justice. End of section 45 Recording by Nicola Kay